The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. This week I want to talk about hope and housing and rents, particularly in Wellington. But actually it's a story that is relevant for the rest of the country too. Back in the early 90s, I was a provincial boy who came to Wellington and I fell in love with it. I went to the Midnight Espresso Cafe and I watched the 12 Volts play their music at the back of the cafe and I thought I was the most sophisticated person ever and I loved it. I had so many friends. Um, it was really easy to live in Mount Vic in an old uh, villa um, with a room, 100 bucks a week. It was great. I could afford it. Even as a sort of a student down on my luck, I could afford it and save some money, in theory, for a house at some point. I had a job, it was great, and lots of mates. And in fact, I could even imagine putting down some roots. I connected up with my lovely wife, Lynn, and we got pregnant, and so we bought a house. It was great. It was a household formation that I'm really proud of, and it was relatively easy. $112,000, this villa in Newtown, uh, cost to buy, and it was it was a little bit tough, but it was doable. This was back when interest rates were 12%. And over that time, I've realised that things are a little bit different now. We went overseas for 10 years and came back. In 2007, I was living in Auckland and was shocked to see that the median house price in Auckland had risen sharply, but also in Wellington, up to $335,000. I couldn't believe it, a trebling of prices between 1992 and 2006-07. And I thought, that's crazy. Prices can't go any higher than that. And I was hearing this new interesting politician, John Key, as opposition leader, talking about solving the problem with a supply shock. He talked about how we needed to clear the way so that councils could allow land to be used to build more houses. Sound familiar? Yeah, it was. And then the GFC hit and John Key suddenly was not so interested in increasing the supply of houses and making houses affordable. In fact, I asked him many times in the following 10 years, when was he going to really get housing supply going? And he said, well, actually, you know, we don't have a housing supply shortage anymore. You can see because the house prices aren't rising. And I'm a little bit worried if we produce too much, house prices might fall. And I don't want that to happen. And I was sort of shocked because I'd watched how asset prices all around the world go up or down. But house prices, suddenly it turns out they weren't allowed to fall. And then we had this interesting new politician, uh, Jacinda Ardern, who came along and talked about how unaffordable housing was and how difficult it was for her generation to get into housing. And that was back when the median price in 2017 in Wellington was $547,000. Well, it turned out she wouldn't change the rules either on capital gains tax. She wouldn't do anything that would drive down the price of houses. Last year, we asked her that question, what would you do? Would you allow house prices to fall? And she said no, because most New Zealanders' main asset was their house price. 
Well, since the median price in Wellington in September 2017 was about $550,000, it's just gone over the million-dollar mark now. And rents. Well, rents in Wellington mean that it's pretty impossible to live here as a young person going to Midnight Espresso, which still exists, by the way. When you look at the median rent since 2007, when we heard John Key talk about that stuff, the median rent has gone from about $300 to now nearly $600. So two sets of politicians, both able politicians, able to convince people to vote for them, large numbers, multiple times, have said, "Mm, yeah, I really want to fix the problem, but actually it's too hard because it might drive down the price of houses. So here we are again. This week's episode is all about the costs of not doing that. We talked to Susan Morton, the director of the Growing Up in New Zealand study, and who since 2008-9 has followed a cohort of 6,000 kids and worked out that 40% of them are growing up in cold, mouldy homes. About the same percentage are actually in all sorts of trouble because they're bouncing from house to house, their parents are financially stressed, they're sick, all because we couldn't fix this housing problem. And our Prime Minister is in charge of reducing child poverty. But here we are again. Those big decisions haven't been taken. She's pledged never to do a capital gains tax in her lifetime. The big spending that's necessary in infrastructure to actually get the houses built, well, just two or three weeks ago, the government decided not to spend that money on infrastructure which would free up more than 30,000 houses in South Auckland not to mention the ten or 20,000 houses that won't be built now in Tauranga anytime soon because of the cancellation of a road. Why? Because the government wants to keep a lid on debt. And so here we are. It's 2021. I'm 54. And I've got a couple of kids who I really want to make sure they can put down roots and have a secure, warm, dry house. And luckily, because I've been uh, on that uh, equity growth route since the early 90s, I can do it. And it's one of the main reasons I do things at the moment to make sure that my kids have a a warm, dry house that they can feel secure in and that maybe one day I'll become a grandfather. But that's hope for my kids, not necessarily for my generation. I've actually lost hope for those kids now in Wellington. And you'll hear from a couple of them later on in this episode who still have hope but are very frustrated that the older generations won't let those houses be built as we're finding out in the Wellington Spatial Plan, effectively the same version of the debate we saw in Auckland with the Auckland Unitary Plan. They still have hope, and good on them, and I hope that the Spatial Plan this week goes through with the required 30,000 extra houses or so penciled into that plan. At the moment, the residents' associations, the NIMBYs, have managed to gut the plan that's going to go before the council. In the same way, they managed to block big chunks of Auckland from being rezoned for medium density. Have a look at the maps for Grey Lynn, Parnell, Ponsonby, Mount Eden. Big sways. You cannot build anywhere near those villas. Even though we thought the unitary plan was a big success, just quietly behind the scenes, the planners were able to gut it and sacrifice the hopes of another generation. You may think this is all a bit down, Bernard. Gee, this is, this is not good. You need to retain hope. Well, actually, I've been covering this political economy in New Zealand for 20 years. I've asked these questions of at least three prime ministers, and every time they've raised my hopes and they've been dashed. So I have something to say to you that you probably won't 
love hearing. If you don't have parents who have equity and you're hoping that you can save enough money to buy a house in New Zealand and put down roots and have that family, give up now. Don't believe what they're saying about how they've got this covered and they can solve it. They won't. They haven't. They've had three or four chances and in that time, house prices have quadrupled, rents have doubled and actually there's not that much to stop it from happening again. When you actually look at the trends for house prices, of course up 30% in the last year despite the worst economic shock since the Second World War and rents in Auckland up uh, uh, 50 to 100 bucks and in Wellington uh, 100 bucks a week. If you're in that generation that thinks you can do it on your own without help from parents or avoid having to marry into it, I have this joke that in New Zealand our version of Tinder should have a checkbox to say my parents own property, which makes you extra attractive in New Zealand. It's a type of pride and prejudice world that we didn't expect to live in, but that's where we are. So I'm saying don't have hope. The facts have changed many times, despite all the promises. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is When the Facts Change, a podcast on the Spinoff Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. To tell the story, I thought we should talk to some people from Wellington who really care about housing and are watching the spatial plan debate closely. Firstly, let's talk to Ashok Jacob, who's with Renters United. Ashok, welcome to our little parliamentary studio. Kia ora. Now, can I ask you a slightly rude and personal question? Um, you've graduated from Victoria University with a history degree focused on development studies, and um, you're renting at the moment, but what are your hopes for your own personal situation? When I think about my uh, hope for the next five or ten years, it's not really anything unusual. It's just I just want to – I just want um, – to be able to live decently and comfortably in this city because I first came here when I was 15 and I just I completely fell in love with it being from Christchurch and I decided this is where I want to live for a significant portion of my life and um, I've actually come here and I found that it's actually stressful because I have to spend a lot of money and I don't get a lot in return when it comes to the housing and it takes its toll because just the conditions in houses in Wellington are so bad not just because they're damp and cold and mouldy, but because there's also significant overcrowding. This is something that's associated with student flats, you know, places with nine or ten people living in it. But now this is something that's affecting people from all demographics, you know, young, but also young professionals and families and even older people in these situations. And, uh, yeah, it's I've it's really bad. So I'm guessing you're paying back a student loan, you're paying quite high rents. Wellington has amongst the highest rents in the country and their rents have risen more than everywhere else in the last couple of years. Let's say, for example, you manage to find someone to to partner up with and you're thinking, let's have a future, let's, you know, maybe start a family. How would you think it, about doing that? Just, just financially, um, given you're paying out such high rents and you've got maybe a student loan and, uh, you know, how would you do that? Yeah, I mean, uh, at the moment, I don't really see a path to do that at all. Like, it's not even on my radar because uh, I used to, I worked in hospitality and the wages are not super high. That coupled with the percentage of my income that I was paying in rent, 
I don't know where I would be getting the money to save for a deposit, especially that's given that house prices are climbing so quickly. I don't know where I don't. It does not. It's not. Doesn't really factor in when I when I sort of think about my future owning a house in the next ten years at least. So in this campaign for getting through the spatial plan, which would allow a lot more medium density housing to be built close to the centre of town, close to the university, close to the jobs, close to the cafes and bars and schools and services. What did you find from the existing residents, many of whom are homeowners in residents associations who were campaigning to stop this spatial plan? Tell us about those meetings you attended in Newtown and in Mount Cook. Well, I think I'd like to start somewhere else just to give a bit of context. When I think about the spatial plan um, and about how Basically, the, un- the idea behind it is to allow development in areas that have previously not allowed development. I see it as sort of writing a historical wrong because in a lot of places in Wellington since the 1940s and 1950s, there have been these bylaws in place that prevent any substantial changes to the existing order when it comes to the buildings and the development that actually goes on there. So there's a there's a little suburb called Highbury, just north of Ara Valley. And um, if you walk down there now, which I often do, there's some really, really dilapidated houses. It's clear nobody's living in or just be, being squatted. And um, there's actually a pretty much a blanket development ban in Highbury that's existed since the 1930s when Victoria University tried to buy part of the suburb to develop something for the university. And the residents there organised and got this ban through. And that was almost 100 years ago. And there are, there are laws like this that, or bylaws in Wellington that still exist that are basically lobbied for by local conservative property-owning interests. These groups are still active, you know, and that's what we found when the city council announced their plans for the spatial plan, that they wasted no time in mobilising against that. When I, as I just sort of joined Renters United and I decided it might be a good idea to just go round to a lot of these residents' association meetings and try and get speaking time and explain what our position on this was as young people and as renters who are not homeowners, who don't have vested interests in the status quo, and sort of just explaining how awful the situation actually is and how much people are suffering because of these, uh, you know, archaic laws that exist. And what did they say in, in return? I was quite shocked, to be honest, as to how vitriolic and emotional it was. I remember I remember um, in the, at the Newtown Residents Association meeting, there was one one person who came up and spoke against the spatial plan and, and uh, the mayor and the councillors were there and she stared them in the eye and said, said we are going to declare war on you if you, uh, if you pass this plan that will change the character of our suburb. And this is, this is Newtown, so it's not exactly... It's, just, it's slightly gentrified now, but it's still not a wealthy place. It's got a higher-than-average proportion of renters. In fact, there, I think a majority of people in Newtown are renters. And um, at, this, at this meeting... It was overwhelmingly homeowners. And so that just shows, I think, that the residents associations, the ones who are politically organised and the ones who get consultation when the council actually goes through the process to get new laws passed or to get major developments done, the people they're consulting with are not representative of the whole city. So they were quite angry about what you were proposing or supporting in the spatial plan. When you said to them, you know, I'd, I'd quite like a bit of this good life and actually, I'd got just a basic house to live in that's not going to wreck my finances and gives me some hope for the future. What did they say to that? 
I mean, as I was a, a few times as I was speaking, I was I was heckled by members of the audience, you know, and I was quite shocked by that because I wasn't expecting the response to be so vitriolic. But the arguments against the spatial plan are really they all that most of them boil down to fear of change. I think there are some people who are doing it for purely selfish reasons, but a lot of them are just fearful of change. I think. And when it comes to those people, I think that the the messaging really has to be explaining to them how bad the status quo actually is. If you actually take them out of that sort of insulated bubble and show them the reality of people living in extreme overcrowding, elderly people and newborn babies and children who are living in really hazardous conditions, conditions that would not be allowed in most other developed countries, I think the message really has to be focused on explaining to those people and of course getting the council to consult with more groups than just residence associations and people who have a particular wealth and demographic before they make decisions. So about a week ago we learnt that the draft version of the spatial plan had been significantly changed to remove a lot of the quote, heritage, unquote, areas from the spatial plan so that they'd be protected from from having um, more medium density housing around them. How hopeful are you that the, the most houses possible will come out the other end of the spatial plan process? If I'm going to be honest, I'm not hopeful at all. Now, we're speaking before the uh, vote tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. But um, just finally... How would you feel about continuing to live in Wellington and trying to make your future here if the current watered-down version of the spatial plan gets through? Again, if I'm going to be honest, I don't want to be in this city uh, for an extended period of time under the current conditions. I mean, I don't make very much money and the only places I'm able to afford are cold and damp and the landlord doesn't care about maintenance and we're constantly having to fight to get basic stuff done. Like, for example, the flat that I'm living in right now, the windows don't close and we've been trying to get the landlord to fix that for months, years even, um, because the, the frames are so warped. I just don't want to... I don't want to subject myself to that for another 10, 15 years, which was my initial plan, because I really love this place. If, 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 that's what, if it means living in conditions like that and having no money at the end of the week to save for a deposit in a house, then I don't think it's worth it. Ashok Jacob, um, I hope that we get a great spatial plan on Thursday. We'll see. Ashok Jacob is from Renters United. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Next up, let's talk to Alison Anitawaru-Cole, who is a PhD student at Victoria University, really cares about uh, the Wellington community building up the spatial plan, but has some really interesting problems that the council should be thinking about legally. Alison, welcome to our parliamentary studio here on When the Facts Change. Kia ora. I'd love to know what your hopes and dreams are about living in Wellington. You're a PhD student at Victoria University who's also teaching and uh, working as an environmental consultant as well. So you're pretty busy and pretty connected to Wellington. So that means you're involved in the debate around the spatial plan, which will make decisions about whether we can have more of these communal housing arrangements, particularly medium density ones where you have shared gardens, shared transport. The spatial plan hopes to create a lot more space and room for more of these medium-density type ways of, of living. What are your hopes for what will come out of this spatial plan and what are the 
risks about how it's travelling at the moment? So one of the major things I'm looking out for is some of the legal risk management issues. And often that's not the first thing you think of around a spatial plan. But as a lawyer, I would just note that there is a a really long-term investment with spatial plans. So we're talking 30 years out, uh, councils around um, the country are putting together these really hefty modelings for spatial plans. And I'm thinking really carefully around this emerging global trend on climate litigation. We're seeing some really costly decisions coming down from courts globally. And I say costly because if planning processes had included climate concerns, for example, and started thinking about things like building densification models into our spatial plan, if those things are thought of at the start, it means that once you've rolled out your plan, you're not having to respond to any possible legal challenges that might require you to rebuild in climate compliant directions. So we had a report come out just this morning actually from the Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing and so that report really tied in with a recent uh, statement from the High Commissioner for Human Rights who was responding to a Dutch case. So the Dutch case was looking at a range of challenges around complying with international climate law and the High Commissioner for Human Rights noted that actually all governments around the world are going to have to start taking proactive steps to include 1.5 degree uh, warming compliance into their planning and noted some really massive challenges that we have in New Zealand and basically trying to highlight that we shouldn't be treating housing as a speculative asset. We should be thinking of it as a human right that is advancing all of these well-being principles that are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, and uh, of course this emerging body of jurisprudence around the world that is really shaping policy as, as, as the judgments are rolling out of court, they're triggering policy changes. That's an interesting perspective on all of this, a nice long-term perspective. Uh, we've spoken in this podcast uh, about the potential long-term risks and opportunities of getting it right on housing. We've got multiple generations who are being affected by bad, expensive housing. And you can actually, being ruthless about it, estimate the long-term costs and benefits of this in a financial sense for the state and for others. But what you're saying is that there's also some long-term legal risks here, not just for the council, but for the country if we choose to have a spatial plan or a unitary plan which actually doesn't gel with our long-term climate needs. Yeah, absolutely. And there's already some um, steps happening within New Zealand around this. So, for example, there is a judicial review around a roading project in Auckland, uh, the Mill Road um, expansion, which was challenged on the basis of emissions and climate concerns. There's also litigation being led by Mike Smith, the climate activist, working with Davy Salmon, the lawyer, challenging um, a bunch of corporations with their highest emissions and also challenging the government. 
government under Titiriti obligations. And what I'm seeing happen already is these pro bono lawyers starting to really coalesce on these issues. You have the whole network now, uh, Lawyers for Climate Action NZ, who uh, have top QCs looking at this issue. So I really think it's a positive avenue to encourage compliance on climate standards. And I see direct application uh, to the housing issue, which is so timely because the climate challenge can actually give us great solutions. Alison Anitawaru Cole. Kia ora. Thank you very much for coming in. You've been with us here in the studio, we'd call them studios, <laughs> a padded cell of a room in, in Parliament of When the Facts Change. After the break, we look at what happens when you don't get it right for an entire generation. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, kia ora to Professor Susan Morton from the University of Auckland. Uh, Susan is an epidemiologist by trade, if there is such a trade, but is now the director of the Growing Up in New Zealand longitudinal study being run out of the University of Auckland. Uh, kia ora, Susan. Great to have you in Auckland. Uh, kia ora, Bernard. I'm particularly curious about the longitudinal study, which I understand... Uh, started in 2009-10 with about 6,000 kids as they were being born and has followed them through over the last uh, 10 years or so just to work out what is it that um, means they have happy, healthy lives. And I'm curious about housing and the potential benefits or costs of ensuring that they have warm, dry, affordable homes. Susan, could you tell us uh, what 
the study has found around the importance of housing in bringing up our kids? Sure. So thank you for that. Obviously, uh, housing is one of the primary environments and a home environment is one of the key environments for children from the time they're born, actually until they leave home, but particularly in the early years. And so growing up in New Zealand has been particularly interested in collecting information about what those home environments look like for our children who are being born in New Zealand today. And I guess there are lots of things that we've found so far, some of them surprising um, and some of them that have shocked us, really. Um, the first thing, I guess, is that when we initially recruited this cohort late pregnancy with their mums and their dads telling the stories before they were able to speak for themselves, we were quite surprised to find that around half of the cohort at that stage were living in rental accommodation um, and that up to half as well had experienced residential mobility at least twice in the five years before their child was actually going to be born. So we were seeing this generation, if you like, of parents in the first instance who were not in stable housing situations. Um, we fully expected that actually the stability of home environments might actually change once once these children were born, that that perhaps this was sort of a part of getting ready to have a family or having this child. But what we've continued to see, I suppose, which has surprised us more than probably any other result in the study, is the high degree of residential mobility for these children throughout their first eight years, because that's as far as we've tracked them so far. So when, when you say residential mobility, what sort of things are you talking about? Are these uh, people moving out of rentals into their own homes or bouncing from rental to rental? And why is it important to look at mobility like that? So that's exactly right. So the, the first thing to say is that actually three out of four of all the children have actually moved home at least once, and we were surprised by that between the age of zero and eight. And when we looked at the reasons why or where they were moving between, we were hopeful in the first instance that they might be moving from less secure or less stable environments like rental properties into home ownership, into environments that would mean that their children were not having to shift every few months or every few years and move environments, which ultimately is not necessarily great for their well-being overall. But unfortunately, what we found over that first eight years of the study in particular is that those families with children who are living in rental accommodations, particularly private rentals, are the most likely to have to move more often. And they're often moving between private rentals. And that's unfortunately mostly due to the unaffordability of living in rental accommodation, as well as things like shifting jobs and so on. But actually, a lot of it relates to finances. And we haven't seen the shift of this generation into their own homes. We've seen a few who have managed to move out of rental properties into home ownership, but that would be far less than 10% of the cohort over that entire eight years. And I think also given the amount of money that these families are having to spend just to maintain rental accommodation, or mortgages for that matter, it is unlikely that they are putting themselves in a position where they will be able to move out of that renting situation. And what about the healthiness of these houses? We know that moving house is a particular problem. 
but these houses, once they're in there, what, what did you find in your studies? And I think that's one of the biggest issues, actually. We were really keen to understand how safe these environments were as well as how secure they were. And what we found is that the rental properties that these families were living in were the least safe. So they had less safety features, things like working smoke alarms, fenced driveways, those sorts of things that have actually led to some change in terms of warrant of fitness and, and so on. But actually because these families have less control over their environment when they're in a rental situation. But perhaps more worrying than that is the level of damp and cold. So we know that our houses overall, um, through lots of research, tend to be cold and damp. But what we were surprised about was that around 40% of the children in this cohort of nearly 7,000 are actually regularly experiencing damp within their homes and in their bedrooms. And so that was something that really troubled us. We also saw that those sorts of experiences were associated with poorer well-being, whether that was mental or physical health of those children. Could you talk about the sort of um, health problems that kids growing up in these damp, cold homes, often with other um, stresses around them, uh, mental health, financial mm. stresses, what what sort of physical health problems do they have and how does it express itself? Mm. So we actually wanted to know that at the individual level and one of the things we've just done that sort of augmented that sort of information about the general association was we actually sent children out with monitors as well to measure the temperatures in their bedrooms. So we got individual level data from those children when they were eight and then we could link that to their particular health status and how that had changed over time. And what we saw, perhaps not surprisingly, but but directly using this information, was that children who were experiencing less than optimal temperatures in their bedrooms, particularly overnight, were much more likely to have asthma, were much more likely to have allergies, were also more likely to have respiratory illness and to have had repeated hospitalisations for issues related to respiratory poor health throughout their early years of life. And then again, looking at instability as well as things like changes or, or less than optimal heating, we also saw that these children had worse depression and anxiety scores at eight when compared to their peers. And that was something that I think we perhaps weren't expecting to see quite so much of. And maybe does reflect this idea that, of course, the ability to provide that home environment that is warm and dry and stable is also related to income and to the stress of finances in the family. So it's it's actually a clustering of things that is going on for these children. And similarly, they are experiencing a clustering of poor well-being that is actually being exacerbated over time. How much of a of a handicap or a, how much of a block is it on these kids? I know you're only eight to 10 years into the study, but you'd have to think that these issues around transience with schools, around health, both physical and mental, will cascade on through the rest of these kids' lives into the next generation, perhaps. And I think, unfortunately, that's what the collection of evidence outside of our study, as well as our own, is, is suggesting will happen, that these are clustering and cumulative impacts that are already starting to have impacts on the inequities we see in the well-being of our children. And we are concerned that actually those things, if we do not address them, if we don't address some of the drivers of the issues that we are seeing for these children in terms of ability to get into their own home, stability of that house, 
trust and then safety and warmth of those homes that we are going to continue to see well-being being impacted over time mental and physical, and that unfortunately is likely to mean that this generation of children and those who are particularly burdened by these issues are going to have less opportunities in the future to not only have good health, but actually to be able to engage in society in the way that we would like them to be able to, and so would their parents. So you would have um, started the survey back in 2008, 2009, when people were were pregnant uh, and were thinking about their futures, often with a lot of hope with a lot of excitement. You know, there's a new baby coming along. There's the start of a family. 18 years in with the sorts of issues that around 40 to 50% of these kids have with uh, housing, with uh, poverty, with financial stress, mental stress, physical issues. What are you seeing eight to 10 years in from those parents who must have started all this with a lot of hope? Look, I think one of the saddest things that we've actually seen, and this is about the housing situation, but it's as much about the persistence of poverty and disadvantage and the cumulative impact that has. And of course, housing is just one of the things that we see that is characteristic of that set of disadvantages, if you like. One of the saddest things we have seen is we asked hopes and dreams of the families, the parents, prior to their children being born. And without fail, almost, mums and dads independently wanted their children to have have better lives than they had had. You know, one in three of the parents was born overseas and they said quite often they'd specifically moved to New Zealand to give their children a better chance, a better chance to be in a society where they were cared for and, and where there are opportunities for them. And, and one of the things that I guess I, I found really most difficult about this over the last few years is that by the time the families who have experienced the greatest poverty and disadvantage, um, by the time their children are four and a half, ready for school, ready for those opportunities that school presents, we're seeing those hopes start to be blunted in the parents. The parents are lowering the expectations for those children who have been growing up in those disadvantaged environments. And I think that's the saddest thing at all, the poverty of hope that those parents are already expressing. I guess there's a glimmer of hope alongside that and that the children still see themselves as potentially able to do anything. And so I think that is the impetus for us to start to use this information, not just to keep talking about the mad and the sad and the bad, and it is, you know, and the sorts of things that we do, but also alongside that to do some of the things we're trying to do to understand what can work, what can work to support some of these families while we deal with some of these bigger, wicked issues of poverty and housing and, and these things that we know need to be fixed but are not quick fixes. So you're looking across a range of factors in this cohort of 6,000 kids. When you look at the hierarchy of things, housing, health, income, how important is housing in the hierarchy of things? How, mm. how much of an impact do you think it has? Look, it's a really hard question to get a definitive answer on, but I think it, it is ever clearer because that home environment is so critically important to shaping the well-being of the children in the early years and because those early years then go on to shape their well-being in the future. I do think that housing is right up there. So um, I'm here in Wellington and listen to the hmm. people at the Treasury and the Reserve Bank and MB and MSD and all these people talk about how they can use the resources of the state, the amount of money they have to spend on infrastructure or changing in tax policies or spending policies. And it occurs to me that the flip side of 
this particular wicked problem, as you, you talk about, with a lack of affordable, healthy housing, is that if we were to change that and we were to build 100, 200,000 warm, affordable houses and over time improve the affordability for both owners and renters, there is a potential gain in a, in a really blunt sense, a gain in economic output, a gain in not having costs of hospitals, or a gain of, you know, people doing better at school, a gain which can't be quite so easily measured, but is obviously as important, if not more important, which is these kids are simply happier and feel more secure. What are the potential, you know, benefits and how would you present those to the decision makers who are thinking in purely financial terms? Yeah, so that's that's a big question, and I think it, it is a really important one. I do think we have to think differently about this. So there's absolutely the supply and demand issue that you raised there. There are, there are not enough houses for our families and for our children, and we see that because less than 10% of our families are actually in public housing, and we know that actually if we look at need of those families, then there are more than that 7 or 8% who actually would qualify for social housing, and they're not able to get into that environment. But I think it's also just at a societal level, it's kind of about the the way that we think about housing as an investment in individuals' growth of their own capital, if you like. And, and yet what we don't necessarily see reflected in some of the ways that we approach housing is how important housing and that home environment is as an incubator of our, all our futures. You know, these are the, the children who will grow up to be our future. And I think there needs to be perhaps a change in the way that we think about how we can provide safe and affordable and secure housing for people who are have young families or are about to have young families. And, and that may be, you know, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm a public health physician, I'm not an economist and I'm not sitting at a policy table, but I guess thinking about what goes on around the world, some of the things that, that would seem to come out of what we're seeing as well as other research would be this idea that maybe we have more rent to own or we have uh, places that are rentals for life so that people can invest in those properties. They can feel some ownership and pride in them and their children can similarly build themselves a little space, however small that is, that is their own, that they don't have to be disrupted from and shift from one place to the next because that geographic mobility is impacting on their well-being. And I guess the other thing that, that I guess if I reflect on how we proportion our um, support, I suppose, across the life course, then I, I guess I would like to see the same sort of approach that we almost take to those over 65, where we are ensuring that they are housed and have a standard of living that is maintained over time. And yet for our families who are dealing with young children, they are still very stressed by needing to take paid parental leave, by losing work, by not being able to get into housing, by not being able to afford to keep housing or, or to heat housing appropriately for their children. And so maybe this idea of everybody living in large homes is something we need to think about again too. You know, not everybody wants to be in a huge house. Sometimes a small house is good too. Sometimes communal housing is, housing is good. You know, maybe we need to take a marae-based model and think about whether that is an approach that has some sort of um, merit within our society. At the moment, uh, we've got councils all over the country considering their spatial plans, a bit like Auckland's unitary plan, 
and uh, the government has has suggested, uh, directed them to uh, include a lot more ability for medium density, for um, smaller dwellings, hopefully more affordable dwellings, often closer to where people have kids at school or are working or shops and uh, movie theatres and that sort of thing. What would you say to those councillors who are considering those plans at the moment and often hear complaints from people living in quite large houses close to town with land around them who say, I don't really want that three or four-storey apartment next to me. Uh, um, Could you make that go away in the spatial plan? What would you say to those people? Um, I guess at a theoretical level, I think those those plans, those ideas are, are based in good evidence. There is good evidence that actually people don't need huge houses or a whole lot of space as long as there are communities and supports around them that can facilitate the sorts of supports and environments they need. So some sort of more community-based living whereby central services are provided and green spaces and all of those things that are important in schools, obviously, and other services, you know, maybe a better model for us to actually be working on. And I think that is um, aligned to some of the ideas that are going on in some of the councils these days. Whether that actually solves the problem of affordability is another issue. And secondly, I think it's probably wrong for someone like me, as well as it might be for some on councils, to actually make those decisions independently of those communities and families who are most burdened by these issues. And one of the things that we have really tried hard to do with the evidence we're collecting is to take that evidence back to those communities who are most affected by what we are finding and to take their collection of stories back and say, what do we do with this? How do we use this evidence that you are telling us collectively might make a difference to your children in this case and turn it into something that you want to be part of, something that you want in your life, something that you will support. So we've done that, for example, in terms of support our families in their first five years of life and, and building sort of homes away from homes. So why not do it with this sort of uh, area as well? Go out to some of those communities and and actually engage with them directly and have those conversations as well as sitting around in think tanks or around council tables or whatever it is and trying to design solutions that may be theoretically well grounded but actually they need to be context specific and relevant to the people who are actually going to need to be benefiting from those, and most of those people are not around council tables. Yeah. So when you started the study back in 2008, 2009, those 6,000 kids in Auckland and in the Waikato, I just had a look. The median house price in Auckland was $428,000, and the median rent in Manukau was um, $350. Mm. Now the median rent is $600, Mm. and the median house price in Auckland is $1.15 million. Yes. So the conditions in place in 2008-2009 when the cohort of kids that you've been studying started, uh, that's where rents and house prices were back then. And so some kids and families will have been able to make that leap from renting into ownership. It'll obviously be a lot harder now. How do you feel about those kids who are going to be born in 2021 22. 
Look, those are all really good points, and I think they back up ideally that you know housing is, is a marker of just how rapidly things have changed, and, and the you know the things that we saw 10, 11 years ago in terms of capacity to get into housing have just been exacerbated by all of the other things that have been going on in the environment. And I guess when I think about those sort of statistics and think about what we are seeing for this group of children who are now turning 12, I am concerned about this next cohort of children who are going to be born in the next few years, as you say. And I really feel like we do need to start turning around our ideas around investing in our future and in our future generation and start to actually divert potentially some of the ways that we balance out our spend at a, you know, at a treasury level, at a government level across agencies and actually realise that investing in these early years with good quality housing, with the ability to heat homes, with support wrapped around families over those critical first few years is actually going to do us all good in the long run. And so we have to do things differently. Professor Susan Morton from the University of Auckland, the Director of the uh, Growing Up in New Zealand Study. Susan, thank you very much. We appreciate you coming in today. No problem. Thanks, Bernard. Next up, Jeremy Couchman from Kiwi Bank, a senior economist who watches house prices and rents and supply very closely. Well, kia ora to Jeremy Couchman, who's the Senior Economist at Kiwi Bank. Welcome to our When the Facts Change studio here in Parliament. Yeah, kia ora, Bernard. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Um, I love a good chat about um, the economy and house prices and interest rates. And I wanted to finish off this episode with looking at the economic weather that's pushing around that housing market that's so important. What are you seeing at the moment with uh, house prices in the wake of what the Reserve Bank has done with its um, tightening of reimposition and slight tightening of the loan-to-value ratio restrictions and also the government's announcement that they plan to remove tax deductibility for uh, landlords, particularly of existing housing. What are you seeing out there in the market? So it's uh, early days now uh, since those changes were, were announced. Uh, in terms of house price growth, that continues to storm along. Um, we, you know, we saw in, I think it was April, uh, house price growth across New Zealand hit uh, 30%. Um, but we are seeing sales activity start to cool a little bit. So there is some, looks like just the start of something happening because of those changes. Yeah. A, a year ago, we were in lockdown. And it's sort of a um, slight reminder because today in Wellington, we've gone into a level two series of restrictions. A year ago, would you have imagined we'd be talking about a 30% rise in house prices? No, absolutely not. No. Uh, Like other economists, we were picking house prices would have fallen at the end of uh, last year. Um, And that was off the back of the the significant uncertainty we've seen in the economy and the expectation that the unemployment rate would would potentially go up towards 10%. Um, And that, that, if that was to have happened, uh, certainly puts a lot of people, um, homeowners and renters, in in a particularly difficult situation, which in our view would have led to a fall in house prices, but thankfully that didn't eventuate. Having a look at the number of listings on the market shows down at least a half from, you know, a decade ago. It's quite a thing, this this drying up of listings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, partly, I mean, you could say, is it longer term? Are we just better at searching for houses now? But it doesn't feel that way. It feels like, you know, we've had a massive run-up in population growth over the last 10 years, you know, over that period. And that's just added more pressure on our housing stock. Um, we haven't built it that at a fast enough rate, yeah. On that housing stock, you've done some research into maybe how much of a shortage there is. What's your view on where we are now and you know how quickly we're whittling away whatever the shortage is? Yeah, so the shortage that we've got, we're, we're sort of estimated at the moment across New Zealand is around 70,000 homes. Um, that's a decent 
uh, number of properties. I think that's similar to the number of houses across the whole of Hawkes, the Hawke's Bay region. So that's a fair number of houses we still are short of uh, where we would like to be. Um, that has, though, fallen um, from, oh, I think it might have been, we might have had a bit of a uh, 85 or something thousand the year before. And that's partly a due to sort of a silver lining, if you like, from COVID. Um, we had a closed border. And so that's led to a big drop in, in population growth and demand for housing. At the same time, we've had builders uh, or the rate of construction actually surged significantly higher, it was trending higher, with consents also suggesting this will continue for some time yet. And so that's actually led to a little bit of a fall in, in, the, in the shortage, which is um, which is encouraging, but we'll just see how that plays out. Because there are some people who, some other economists who suggest, gee, we've been hammering away, building 40,000 houses a year, hardly anyone came through the border in the last year, maybe we're almost, almost there. Possibly. Uh, I mean, we think... You know, at current rates, um, we, we would expect to see perhaps this shortage being dried up over uh, maybe the next two, two, three years. Um, but it really depends on a lot of factors, right? So in the construction sector now, we know there's significant um, supply constraints or, or shortages of materials, of labour. So can we continue to build at this current pace or even accelerate from here? That seems like it's going to be a hard ask. And then the other uncertainty is really around um, the net migration uh, side of things because uh, the biggest driver of New Zealand's population growth or has been over the last well, for, for a number of decades now has been that net migration figure. Uh, at the moment it's very low. Um, we, we went from a high of I think 90,000 um, just before COVID as a lot of Kiwi came back uh, to, to the country just to avoid um, or get back before lockdown. Um, but that's dropped to around 6,000 now uh, across the country. So that's a massive drop to where we have been. And where will it go from here? Well it really depends on, on what we do around our borders. And the government it's also looking at immigration policy, and that's half of, of net migration is the flows of people that aren't New Zealanders. Yeah. There's a great conundrum here that if we're going to build a lot more houses to solve this supply crisis and try and deal with this affordability problem, at least some of the workers will have to come from overseas. But um, one of the reasons cited in trying to reduce the number, particularly of temporary workers and migration overall, is the pressure on the number of houses. It's like some sort of horrible catch-22. <laughs> it is. It really is. And and it's not just in construction. You know, it's the health sector as well, which, um, you, you know, is feeling um, the, the impact of not being able to get the skills that, that they need. And it's not just health as well or, or housing. It's across the board. The other thing that drives house prices is up and down. Well, seemingly just up, is interest rates. Over the last um, couple of decades, in particular the last 10 years, we've seen a significant drop in structural or neutral interest rates, depending on how you measure it. And interestingly, the banks, uh, luckily, have not reduced their affordability thresholds, uh, which um, they use to calculate um, how much people can afford to service of a mortgage. My understanding is that all of the banks have around 6% or slightly above that as the key measure they use when they try to work out whether someone can afford a, a mortgage, even though the mortgage is at the moment around about 2%. Uh, what's the outlook at the moment for interest rates over the next year or two? Could that change the equation? I certainly can. I mean, interest rates are a big driver of, of the housing market and, um, and house prices. And you know, since we've come out of lockdown last year, New, the New Zealand economy has performed much better than anyone had imagined. Uh, and we saw recently 
that um, the economy at the, f- at the start of 2021 actually expanded by 1.6%, which blew all forecasts, including us, out of the water. And that just shows that we've got an economy that's performing much stronger than we and, and for example, the Reserve Bank thought. You know, it feels like that the downside risks, all, all, the, all the bad stuff that we've been talked about is off the table now. And it feels like the, um, the pathway is clear for the Reserve Bank to start thinking about normalising interest rates. And we think, you know, next year um, it'll be right for them uh, as the economy has healed and has really started to get into that recovery mode to start to lift the official cash rate. The Reserve Bank um, in its last forecasts, and they were, these were three or four weeks ago, were saying that they actually saw, saw that first quarter GDP falling, I think 0.6%. Right. To be fair to them, they hadn't seen all the um, the interim numbers on the bits and pieces that go into GDP, so we can't blame them too much for being uh, that wrong. But back, back then, they were also forecasting that sort of mid-2022 Potential lift off. What do you, what do you think now? The current snapshot of where the economy is. When do you think those interest rates could start rising? I mean, we think sort of around the middle of of twenty twenty two as well, around May. So a little bit earlier than the Reserve Bank had signalled that they might look at doing it. Um, we think that um, the data flow has just generally been more positive, and that that should continue. Uh, I mean, gr- growth itself has been quite volatile, um, but you know when you combine that with an unemployment rate that's well below four percent, you um, we know inflation's picking up. Although a lot of this inflation that we expect to see will be more temporary, but the sort of the excess capacity in the economy has been has been used up. Um, the spare capacity up there, it'll probably get used up much sooner and that will drive the underlying level of inflation through to next year. So we think that around May next year will be the right time to start to lift interest rates. And uh, that, that will have some influence on the housing market. What's your current view on where house prices go? Yeah, so that'll flow through, um, and we're already starting to see that in mortgage rates, sort of longer-term fixed mortgage rates are starting to have been lifting. Um, so we think that rise, uh, expected rise in interest rates should have a dampening effect on activity, as we saw, you know, the opposite happen when rates are cut. So that'll start to see house price growth at the moment, around 30%. We think it'll drift down uh, from the second half of this year and hit a trough of around 1% on an annual basis. So still growing, so it's not a correction, but it's certainly a much slower pace of, of growth. Um, and then probably stabilise, given all the policy changes that we've seen, uh, from there. So I've been looking at asset markets for 30 or 40 years, financial <laughs> yep. markets, and, and you know, they move around. They go up and they go down, and they go up and they go down. But there's one asset market, the really big one in New Zealand, where prices go up, and then they might stop going up, and then they go up again, but they never seem to go down much. I remember the GFC, when, you know, the world seemed to be ending, uh, the most they fell was... 10%, and it wasn't too long before they were back where they'd started. And this time around, you know, hardly any, if any, and then, in fact, up 30%. So what, why is it that house prices seem to be different in the way that they move compared to other assets, assuming, of course, it is just another asset? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is an asset, but it's also a necessity it's where people have to live. So there's that element to it. But I think in New Zealand, it's just such a famili- familiarity with housing. There's, there's that, um, we just seem to be enamoured with housing in terms of a, a wealth-creating vehicle. So that's certainly part of it. But I guess over the last 15 years or so, post the GFC, when we had population starting to grow, starting to pick up and actually start to accelerate, we just didn't build enough. And that's just added on top of other factors to the to the rise in house prices that continued storming along of, of those prices, yeah. Yes, um, lots of economic weather around, and we'll see how it goes in the next year or two, and uh, and for house prices. Jeremy Couchman, Senior Economist at QBank, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you, Bernard. And there we have it from Jeremy. House prices are going to keep rising. 
We really have a market failure here, which needs to be dealt with with some political intervention. Hasn't happened over the last 30 years or so, but maybe there's always hope. And we'll see whether this spatial plan in Wellington does the trick. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change on the Spinoff Network, brought to you in association with KiwiBank. And don't forget to subscribe because it's a weekly podcast and it's plenty juicy. Hit that button so it gets into your phone like magic every week. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.